We are going to be continuing on with this study here. Hopefully there, there are some of those left around. If we have any uh, on the tables or in the back or anything like that, I didn't hope that they weren't thrown away. Um, here are, no, that's Isaiah with Lutheran. Okay. Well, if need be, I'm just going to have to read it, read this, and then um, we'll go to some of these Bible passages. Okay, um, shall we begin with a prayer? Thank you very much. Oh, dear Lord and Savior, we pray that as we now approach this wonderful season of Advent, that you would prepare our hearts as you did also with those people in the entire Old Testament for that wonderful coming promise of a Messiah, a Savior, who would come into this world. Make our Christmas into something that is truly Christmas, a celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, for in his appearance, in that victorious announcement made to Mary, that she would become the mother of our Lord, you signaled that the victory over sin and death and hell would be won, and that this victory was assured because of your presence. For you are the internal and invisible God who has taken on human flesh and blood in order that we might be saved from your wrath, and that the wrath of God that comes upon the world for sin has now been in Christ turned away. We pray, Lord, that we might see that wonderful peace and comfort in this season of Advent. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All righty. Well, now that the Latimers are here, we can begin. We weren't going to start without you. Just wanted to let you know that. Let's, um, I'll just read a little bit of what it is that Luther said relative to the subject of, of the prophecy that had to do with the human nature of the Messiah. Um, you know, the, the, the Jews, prior to the coming of Christ, they, they were always kind of in a mystery as to how these things could be true. I mean, how is it that the Scriptures could say that he was going to be true God, and how could the Scriptures say that he was going to be true man? And it appeared, I guess maybe to human logic, that those are mutually exclusive. You know, how could you be both God and man? And the mystery of this incarnation is something that, um, that even mystified the early church because when we approach the subject of God, we have in our minds, uh, our culture has in its mind a, a view of, of what that should look like. And in the early, uh, in the early world, uh, they saw, I mean, if you, if you kind of take it from the Greek point of view, they saw the fact that all flesh was decaying and that people had a sinful nature, and they therefore made the assumption that the human nature was not capable, God was, in a sense, not even interested in the, in the human nature, that, that there was something else in us that was a soul or a spirit or some sort of a divine life that would be inside of us, and that it was almost as though it were trapped inside of our bodies. So that if you said you believed in the bodily resurrection, they would, like they did with Paul at Mars Hill, remember how it is that they scoffed at him? The minute that he said that Christ was raised from the dead, that that body of Christ was raised, they were into, I mean, they, you can, as far as they were concerned, you could believe in any God that you want to believe in. You could believe that God was one. You could believe that God was eternal. You could believe all those things about God. Even, you know, of course, as long as you gave them the right to be able to believe in whatever they wanted to believe in. But this idea that God actually was interested and wanted to redeem and save the flesh of mankind, that was so contrary to them. And that, that we call those people Gnostics. A Gnostic was a person who comes from the word gnosis, which is a knowledge. A Gnostic was a person who supposedly had this secret knowledge that God had to impart to mankind. And it was not something that came through words. 
you, you didn't, uh, a Gnostic uh, could not imagine that God could actually use human words to impart to us divine truth. That too was a mystery to them. And so uh, a, a true Gnostic was after the spirit and it went all the way from being maybe a, a true soul where there might be some identity in who we are as a soul, but all the way to being nothing but a spark, like, a, like they would talk about the flame and the sparks that came out of the flame, that supposedly there was this kind of this eternal God, uh, like the force be with you, you know, that, that, that just kind of burned like a fire, this eternality of God, and that the spark came out of that fire, and there hit us, we, we as, the, as human beings had the little spark inside of us, and then when we got rid of this sinful, this body, then the spark went back to the fire. But you notice what that does to personality. It destroys personality. It says really that life is a life force rather than a life personality. Probably, we, we, if we look at American Christianity today, the, and the natural tendency of man is to veer away from, I guess you might call it incarnational theology. That it, uh, we said this morning in the, in the sermon, it's all about one thing, that we might know the true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That we might know the resurrection, that we might experience as body and soul, that we might be able to enter into eternity that this body, and, and there too in the Apostles' Creed, when it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, it is, I believe in the resurrection, and they put in there, not of the soma, which could maybe be even interpreted as being kind of, that there's something of us is raised, it says in the resurrection of the sarks, the flesh. So when we as Christians go to the grave and say goodbye to our husbands, our wives, our children, and we grab those hands, it really blows our mind to think that we are going to actually be seeing and touching that person again. I, I don't know, I mean, not to divert, our, divert ourselves here because we we do want to get through this entire thing. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, when we talk about our funerals, Americans today are, are cremating in great numbers. Um, why would it be that Christians maybe were opposed to cremation? And I don't mean to bind the consciences of anybody here who has... Uh, done that or their parents have been cremated or whatever it might be, but because God is quite capable of being able to take remains and to still raise that person from the dead because what happens with in, a, in 30 seconds inside of a uh, cremation, whatever they call those things, crematorium, will happen in 30 years in the grave. I mean, the body's going to simply decay, right? But why... Why would we be opposed, or why, do, why were Christians opposed to cremation? Any ideas? There's, there's, there's some kind of, an, of a connection that when we go to the grave and we put a body in the grave, it's also telling us that this same person body and soul is going to be raised. Now, it used to be, and, and this has changed too, it used to be that people were cremated as a statement against the Christian resurrection. So that uh, if this was something that people did as atheists to make their statement against Christians, that changes it from being... Um, uh, an, what do you call an adiaphora, an adiaphoran, 
Nadi Afra is something that's neither commanded nor forbidden. You know, we don't have anything in the scriptures that says you're not supposed to cremate your body. It doesn't tell us that we have to bury a body in its whole totality. But when unbelievers, when anti-Christians come along and they do something to try to make a statement against what we believe, we are Germans, stubborn as can be. Although I would have to say that I've known a few Norwegians in my life that make Germans look like they're very liberal and tolerant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the body and the resurrection of the body. Now, you can see now how it is that the incarnation set Jewish belief, Old Testament Jewish belief, the idea that the Messiah was going to come in the flesh, it set it against almost every single religion that surrounded it, every single religion basically in the world. You know, Buddhism, you don't even know whether or not there's a God, it's a way of life, right? Hinduism, reincarnation, you go from, you get rid of this body and the, now all of a sudden you're a mouse if you've been bad. You're an elephant if you've been good. If you're really good, you get to be one of those Brahma bulls. Um, the, uh, the idea of the, the transmigration of souls means that souls basically have no personality. Now, okay, so here we are, and here's this statement of the incarnation. And let's see what Martin Luther says. He says, they raise a hue and cry against us, saying that we mingle the two natures into one essence. This is not true. We do not say that divinity is humanity or that the divine nature is the human nature, which would be confusing the natures into one essence. Rather, we merge the two distinct natures into one single person and say, God is man and man is God. We, in turn, raise a hue and cry against them for separating the person of Christ as though they were two persons. In Swingley's Eliosis stands, if Swingley's Eliosis stands, we'll talk a little bit more about that, then Christ will have to be two persons, one a divine and the other a human person, since Swingley applies all the texts concerning the passion only to the human nature and completely excludes from them the divine nature. Woofta, poofta. Who's that Swingley? Well, um, sorry about that. I, I, I would draw something for you. But um, Ulrich Swingley was the reformed. He had been a priest in Switzerland. He had been a priest in Switzerland. And he was the one who turned around and basically shoved away all this Roman Catholic stuff, right? We, we say with Martin Luther, he didn't take the Lord's Supper and say, Mm, there is no such thing as the, body, the, the union of the divine and human natures here. Luther would say, we have the Lord's Supper. It's real. Christ is truly present. But he is, this is not a sacrifice of the mass. This is a sacrament where God is giving us his gifts. So the, he kept the sacramentology because that was scriptural. And in baptism, he saw in, in, the, in the waters of baptism, the word attached to that waters of baptism, he saw that actually there was a mystical union that was taking place in, through, and by means of that word of God in baptism, right? So Luther was not taking Roman Catholicism and throwing it out the door. He was reforming it. But guys like Ulrich Swingley, they came along, and basically if the Roman Catholics said left, he said right. If the Roman Catholics said up high, he'd say down low. Roman Catholics basically were saying that Christ was not, that Christ was present in the Lord's Supper, and so for Swingley, he was not present in the Lord's Supper. And this, uh, this essentially what this did is it drove Swingley into seeing Jesus basically almost like, like Luther says, like two Christs. There was this human Christ who is suffering, dying upon the cross, who's shedding his blood, and so on and so forth. 
But that really didn't have anything to do with that divine Christ. Because when he was raised, now Christ goes into heaven and there's no real tangible, physical, fleshly Christ left. He's now this exalted, divine second person of the Trinity. And we, of course, know that, but we also know that he didn't leave his human nature behind. So if we say that God is present everywhere, right? Is he, in Christ, is God present everywhere according to his human nature? And if you say he is not present according to his human nature everywhere, you'd be a swing man. What you say of the divine Christ, you have to also say now of the human Christ, that this human nature is taken up into the divine nature, and so when he rules the heavens and the earth, when he fills all things, he does all things even according to his human nature. Now, when you think about this, about the Lord's Supper, you go, yeah, yeah, you Lutherans, you're just kind of narrow-minded, you know. You, you, yeah, we're, 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 we're all Christians, but you Lutherans just kind of have that extra thing called the Lord's Supper where you believe in the body and blood of Christ being present there. That's just kind of, you know, it's kind of like an addendum. It's extra. It's in the appendix of the book, not in the main story. If you do not have a physical Christ present in the Lord's Supper, you have denied the incarnation. It's as simple as that. And you know what John says? That the spirit of the Antichrist is exactly manifest in that statement. If you do not believe that Christ is present according to his human nature, you are living under the spirit of the Antichrist. He comes to us, John says, he comes to us in this blood. So you say, well, why? I mean, there's a bit of metaphysical truth there. Yeah, that this is the case. But to understand also that according to his human nature, Christ had to do things that were human in order to be able to save us. And the fullness of time had come. Paul and Galatians. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem us under law that we might receive the full rights of sonship. He had to be made under the law. I, 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 I think... Most of us, uh, and if we kind of speak of ourselves as human beings in the most general sense, most of us are a little bit like some of the students that my wife has in her English class. What you do is you just kind of say, where's your paper? And you go, well, didn't I hand that in? And you say, well, no, you're going to fail the class if you don't hand it in. And you go, but you don't understand, I wanted to. And you go, sincerity. You know, all we have to do as Christians is be sincere. All we have to do is we don't have to worry about whether or not we're united to Christ in baptism. We don't have to worry about whether or not we partake of his body and his blood. We don't have to worry about whether or not his blood, literally, truly, tangibly, human nature, is necessary for us and for our salvation. We just think about God. That's all we do. We just think about him in a positive way. And you know where that leads you? First of all, you can't. You can't. You have to be able to think about God through Christ. That's what that text said today. Excuse me. That's what that text was saying today, that they might know thee, the only true God. And then there's a conjunction there. Even Jesus Christ. But even means that the second part explains the first part. You come to know God by coming to know Christ. And therefore, you cannot avoid that human nature of Christ if you're going to approach God. You can't just say you believe in him. Guys out in the golf course, I believe in God. You have to be able to actually 
grab onto the flesh of Christ. You have to be united to him. That's what the human nature is all about. What belongs to him, what is given to him, what is in him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You don't, he didn't say, I am the vine, think about that. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. We'll back up to verse 1. The call of Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, why couldn't God just simply uh, bless everybody in the most generalistic sense? You know, where you just kind of say it from heaven. He had to bless us through what would come from the loins of Abraham. It had to be through the flesh. 1818, Jump over. We're going to back up to verse 17. And uh, why don't we read it all the way through 19 together. Are you, are you all together? Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Again, this whole idea that in Abraham all nations will be blessed. Let's look at chapter 49, verse 10 of Genesis as well. Okay, now this is the, the blessing of Jacob uh, upon his sons before he dies. <clears throat> They're in Egypt. We back up to verse 8, and I'll just read that. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Already an indication of his, of his coming kingship. You are a lion's cub, O Judah, you return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So now this, of course, as you know, Judah... The kings come from Judah, and David came from Judah, and Jesus, as the king of Israel, would also come from that line as well. Okay, um, just some other texts. Isaiah 11, 1. Isaiah, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This, is, uh, this gets us all hepped up here for Christmas, doesn't it? Um, why don't we read... Um, uh, this is so, there's so much here. I don't know that we can go all the way through it, but let's, let's uh, do this. I'll, I guess I'll read it. <laughs> A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse... From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, 
the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will make give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And so on and so forth. And then he describes kind of the peace that will come from this. And in verse 9, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover this, as the waters cover the sea. So uh, Isaiah is, um, is, is kind of helping these Jews who either are about to be taken into captivity or even later on, what we call Second Isaiah, uh, goes from about chapter 40 and on. We call it Second Isaiah because it appears as though it was written after they had been taken away into captivity. Now you think about, you think about what that would do to you as a people. Why would the Jews hang on and not just simply assimilate into, like, say, for instance, the Babylonian culture? What would be the reason for hanging on to this, to this culture? Why would they do it? Why, uh, why do the Amish do it? What are they, uh, what's, the, what's the reason for the, uh, Jews to do it today? To remain Jewish. What does that mean? What's the purpose? For some, do I have to answer my own questions here, you guys? I mean, I meant we're all thinking, right? Um, for, for some, it's a, it's a perpetuation of a culture. I asked, I, when I was a pastor out in Connecticut, I, there was a Jewish rabbi that I got to be really good friends with. He's the one who, who would go to the clergy association meetings and, um, and the... Uh, the uh, some of these ministers would get up and they would have prayers like they would say, fold our hands and pray, Mother, Father, God. And both the Jewish rabbi and I, our heads snapped up like this because we said, for goodness sakes, Mother, Father, God, what are you talking about? Well, um, the only thing is is that he didn't really believe in a God. I said, you don't believe in a God? You're a Jewish rabbi. And he said, well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> and um, I said, well, why are you Jewish? He said, because it's the, it's the best culture that I could live in. I said, well, that's, yeah, that's proven itself to be true, the Holocaust and a few other things like that that have gone on. <laughs> I mean, do you, you possibly think that maybe this isn't the best culture to live in? But for many of them, I mean, it, was, it is a culture where people are bound together by their common ethnicity, and therefore they also have a common set of so-called rules of life, what to eat, what not to eat, the way in which you prepare food, um, things that you do, days that you observe, Sabbaths, and so on and so forth. It's an ordered structure of life. And when they look at this chaotic world in which we're living in, where nobody has anything that guides or governs them, whatever, they look at, at us and they think that we're just simply living random chaos lives without purpose. And so to be Jewish, not necessarily to believe in God, is a culture. Well, that's all good and fine, but that's not the reason for why the Jews held on. They held on because they knew that the Savior of the world was going to come out of them. They were the culture. They were, they were the, I don't want to say the Petri dish, but you know what I mean. They were, the, they were the, the culture out of which the Messiah was going to come. And if they didn't survive, the Messiah wouldn't come into the world. Now God is going to make it happen. In order to be able to make it happen, they almost destroyed themselves by the way that they abandoned the faith. And so what did God do? He crushed them. And he took them and he brought them into captivity and he created a remnant. 
And that remnant grabbed on and held fast, and they were the ones that then came back. He purified them, kind of like gold is purified in a furnace. You say, well, what do you suppose happened to us? What happened in Germany? A good number of us are come from German roots, right? Along came the old king of Prussia, and king of Prussia said, you guys are all going to have to merge your religions. You're going to be Reformed and Lutherans. You're going to have to all come together, and you're going to have to give up all that liturgy. You're going to have to give up those sacraments. And why Sandy Kapeshka's great-grandpa or grandpa, he marched all the way from Pomerania by foot all the way to a place called Hermannsburg where there was a bunch of confessional Lutherans. And he stayed there, and he went through training, and he became a pastor, and he came to the United States. And now those little Kapeshka boys and girls came as a result of that to this place. And through that furnace of affliction, God kept his remnant alive. Question is, what are we going to do? Anybody here up for moving to uh, New Guinea? Where are we going to go? What happens if our faith gets persecuted and we have to somehow go someplace where we can have religious freedom. You ever thought about that? Well, we're all hoping that we go to heaven before we have to worry about that, right? But we're getting there. Not too far away. There's a lot of that happening. How do we get there from here? Okay, the incarnation and why Israel persevered. Let's go to John chapter 1. Luke John. <coughs> Verse 45. We're going to um, we're going to back up here. Um this is where Jesus is calling his disciples. Let's back up to verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You notice how it is that he, uh, he calls him the son of Joseph, which I don't know if so much as a, um, a, um, a statement of his human nature as it is actually of his, uh, what he claims through Joseph, and that is that he is the king of Israel. Um, verse 46, I, I, I like Nathaniel uh, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see. He's a, he's a, we might call him a big city snob. Um, you know, you would say, Minnesota. Can anything good come out of Minnesota? And then in Minnesota, they say, Iowa. Can anything good come out of Iowa? And people in Iowa say, South Dakota. Can anything good come out of South Dakota? They He's, uh, Nazareth was just this, this itsy-bitsy town that sat up on top of kind of like a plateau. And you didn't have any good reason to go there. And so they, he's saying, this is, he, this is, he's the insignificant. He's coming from some podunk town up, up in Galilee. And um, Philip says, come and see. Well, um, how about Acts? Now, this is where the Apostle Paul has to convince the world about who Jesus is. So let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Those of you that are, have Bibles, Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Okay. Now, I'm going to back all the way up to verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying, 
that his Christ would suffer. Now, does that in any way tell us that he had to have a human nature? Does God suffer? No. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So faith in this human Messiah. Now, we talked a lot about prayer today, didn't we? In first service. Um, you say, what, what was one of the reasons for why it is that Jesus had to be true man? Um, does God feel pain? Does God feel abandonment? He's God. He didn't, nothing's abandoned. The Son loves the Father for eternity. The Holy Spirit dwells within, through, and by means of the Father and the Son. There's nothing that God lacks. Internal to the Godhead, all things are sufficiently supplied. You know, they, sometimes people get this notion that, that God is pining away to save us. Kind of like a, a father whose kids have all gone astray. Uh, there's this guy named, um, who wrote an introduction to Walther's Law and Gospel, and he made the statement, God could have sent all humanity to hell without lifting any finger to save him, and it would not have changed God from being a God of love. We have to remember that there was nothing that compelled God to save us. What he did, he did out of his kindness and his mercy. He willed our salvation. He was not compelled to save us. He willed it. But what we, even though we kind of understand that you know, God knows all things, you know, knowing it in that sense and knowing it in this sense, everything that we go through in our life Christ came to experience in the human nature so that he might pray perfect prayers on our behalf. When you feel despair, when you feel fear, when you feel loneliness, when you fear and, and, and feel and experience death and its misery, what do you suppose that Christ is feeling when he stands at the grave of Lazarus and he weeps? He felt all of that so that any time that you and I go through those things, he understands and he prays the perfect prayer before his Father in heaven for you and for me. The perfect prayer. But the perfect prayer is not like we would say, I'm feeling hurt, take it away. He doesn't. Sometimes he does but sometimes he doesn't. And so then, all of a sudden, our faith begins to struggle. And when our faith begins to struggle, and then we have to be able to grab onto God, and we have to grab onto his mercy, and we have to grab onto his promises, even though it seems contrary to everything that we know and believe. What enables us to do that is not us. It's him praying before his Father in heaven. Remember that story about Moses, as the Israelites, <clears throat> they, they come out of Egypt, and here come the Amalekites. You know, that, that they're, they're the forever enemies of Israel. They hated the Israelites. 
not only because the Israelites defeated them, but even later on, this guy named Haman, who wants to exterminate all the Jews, and remember the story of Esther and how she goes before the king and all that kind of stuff? Well, that Haman, he was an Amalekite. And those Amalekites came out, and Moses goes up upon a mountain, and there he holds up his arms like this, which is the sign of prayer. And as long as his arms are up like this, the Jews were prevailing. And his arms get tired, and they start to drop. And when he puts them down, they start losing. So Aaron and Joshua go over and grab his arms, and they hold his arms up like this, and they win. What enables us to win is Christ standing before the throne of his Father, praying on our behalf. His human nature was absolutely crucial because there isn't anything that we could ever experience that he did not experience. Can you imagine if you took Swingley and here's the divine nature just kind of hanging out while this human Jesus is doing his human things and then at the resurrection kind of leaves behind this human nature? We're back to the same God that has no understanding of who we are. So this, this promise of a human nature is far more than, and, this, and the most significant thing of all, is the fact that this promise of a human nature is that he is going to take the curse of the law. He's going to actually pass through death into life. It's, it's that Trojan horse, you know, that, that horse where the Greek soldiers go up inside of the Trojan horse and the Greeks all leave, pretend to leave, and then they take the horse into the city and they're rejoicing and such. Uh, the way that death is destroyed is that Jesus actually has to bear the curse of the law and he takes that curse with him into and through the gates of hell. And then when we are baptized, Paul says that God literally unites us to Christ so that we are in Christ. And as Christ has passed through death into eternal life, we went and also passed through it with him. Every one of you who have been baptized into Christ, you have already died. When he died, you died. So now, does anybody have any problems with the idea of death? Well, let's, let's not welcome it too fast. But let's remember that we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be afraid of it. We've already passed from death into life. Now we just persevere, don't we? We drag this old body with us all the way to the grave. But we know this, that if God wanted our bodies, he had to and did take the human body, the second person of the Trinity took that human body of Jesus. And it's the one thing that the world can't grasp. Just think, what's heaven going to be like? What kind of clothes are we going to wear? Are we going to wear blue in heaven? Will there be football players in heaven? Not the Colts this year, that's for sure. <laughs> um, just, uh, you know, it's, I, you know I, I said, if, if our prayer is supposed to be that our children might know the true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent, how, how does that affect our lives? How, how does that affect our prior, priorities in life? And I would, I would hope that, that every aspect of their life would become important because it was every aspect of the life of Jesus was important. So I do want to say this, and this was always my argument against my parents. I tell all my confirmation students that they should use this too. Jesus grew up and spent some 30-some years of his life living among his brothers and sisters, his mother and his father, and they never knew that he lived a perfect life. So I've always said that if they couldn't recognize perfection, neither could my mom or dad. <laughs> Let's use that again. 
All right. Um, we're about 10 minutes out here. Let's, um, let's just look at, uh, at this uh, prophecy of Daniel that we spoke about earlier today in our lesson. And let's see what Luther says about it. This is, uh, the subject is the time of his advent, when he is going to be, be appearing. Luther writes, This Daniel we commend to the reading of all good Christians. Um, why don't we ask the question, how many of you have read the book of Daniel within the last 10 years? Well, good for you. Uh, that's great. Um, it's not exactly what you would call on the reading list, but we like, we like the Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, in Abednego stories, but some of these prophecies are very hard for us to understand. We commend to the reading of all good Christians to whom he is comforting and useful in these wretched last times. But to the wicked, he is of no use, as he himself says at the end, the wicked shall remain wicked and shall not understand. For the prophecies of Daniel and others like them are not written simply that men may know history in the tribulations that are to come and thus satisfy our curiosity as with a news report. But in order that the righteous shall be encouraged and made joyful and strengthened in faith and hope and patience. You, can, you cannot imagine. Uh, he predicts, uh, Daniel predicts the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus, the, uh, you know, when Alexander the Great uh, conquered that huge region, region around the, uh, the, um, the Mediterranean and all the way into Persia, after his death, he had four generals, and those four generals divided up territories. And this Syria, it was Egypt, Syria, um, Greece, Macedonia, and someplace else. And this region of Syria came to be ruled by this Antiochus Epiphanes, one of his descendants of a general. He was unbelievably cruel to the Jews. He crucified these Jews in huge numbers, literally lining the roads for miles with crucifixions as they're agonizingly uh, dying. And for, for these, you can just well imagine, I mean, we have a hard enough time, we get a little cancer, or we get a little sickness, or we, I get the flu, and it's, you know, there, there's no God in heaven, right? Why in the world would God do this to us? You know, why and why, why God? There can't be a God if he's a God of love and so on. You cannot believe what those people endured. You cannot. To see people literally by the thousands being crucified. And all for their faith. Now, therefore, in Daniel's book, we have promises that this is all going to come to an end, that the Messiah is going to come. This is what Luther is saying. This isn't written so that we might all know history. This isn't some news story. He says, For here the righteous see and hear that their misery shall have an end, that they are to be freed from sins and death and the devil and all evil, a freedom for which they yearn and be brought into heaven, to Christ, into his blessed everlasting kingdom. This is how Christ, too, in Luke 21, 28, comforts his own by means of the terrible news, saying, When you shall see these things, look up and raise your heads, because your redemption is near. For this reason we see, and here, too, Daniel will always, always ends all his visions and dreams, however terribly, with joy. Namely, with Christ's kingdom and advent, it is on account of this advent, the last and the most important thing, that these visions and dreams were given, interpreted, and written. Um, what do we say today? That What does Jesus pray for? What was the last thing that Jesus prayed for? He prays for your and my joy. No matter how bad life might be, he prays for our joy. And the reason why we're joyful as Christians is because we know it can't be taken from us. Neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul says. 
Everything about that? You know, when I, when I was younger, I just was speaking personally, when I was younger, about Zoe's age, I always thought, you know, I could die and go to heaven. I wouldn't be afraid of dying. Then I got kids. And I thought, well, let me at least get them through high school. And then after that, they took off and said, well, I'm going to have to support them while they're in college. And then they started having kids. And then I'm pretty well, I'm saying, well, not right now. When am I ready to die? Well, I think we're all ready to die, aren't we? Anytime. Lord, when at last thine angels come to Abram's bosom, bear me home. Yeah. Well, um, I think I'm going to end with that. And um, we'll get ourselves in our hearts and our minds all in preparation for this wonderful coming of Christ. And remind ourselves, if those Jews had to hear those promises in order to remain steadfast and faithful through the rest of their life, we need to hear them too. No matter how hard it's going to be, they can't take anything from us. Right? Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's close with a prayer and a benediction. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and keep us in this joyful hope that because you have taken on our human flesh, you understand all the things that we have gone through. You are merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and there you pray in our behalf. But also you send your grace through the Holy Spirit to strengthen us that we might live in this world and that we might endure through the hardships and even the hatred that can come from bearing your name. Keep us faithful as your people to this gospel that tells us not only that Christ died for us, but that this comes to us in, through, and by means of the powerful word of God given to us in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the preaching and the proclamation of the forgiveness of our sins. That these things are real, true, and life-sustaining. Help us all to be prepared for your coming at Christmas that with hearts full of joy and happiness we may promise to you our lives in service and in joyful devotion to those whom you have called us to serve. And we pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you peace.